My name is Glenn Jordan, board member of the American Society of Music Arrangers and Composers in Los Angeles. On April 6, 2016, we were very fortunate to have multi-Emmy and Grammy award-winning arranger Patrick Williams speaking at ASMAC's first Wednesday event. The subject for the evening was conceptualizing a big band chart, but instead Pat took the evening into a totally different heartfelt and personal direction, discussing his work with Frank Sinatra on Sinatra's final recording project, the Duet Albums. ASMAC is delighted to be able to share that evening with you in this podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Patrick Williams. It's nice to be here. Thanks for coming. Uh, the, the reason that uh, I thought we were going to do this was essentially about arranging. But as I started to think about it, um, at least these two arrangements that I brought um, were something that, that had so much more to do with, with anything other than just the arranging. It had to do with the whole uh, kind of lifespan of what I enjoyed in popular music. And that really was from a very early age. I mean, literally early. When my, my, I was born in 1939. And my father had a Victrola. And it was the wind-up thing. Was it the RCA logo? I think so. Anyway, I'd listen to... Um, uh, Harry James, Tommy Dorsey, and he had these 78s of the big bands. And I, I think I was still, my mother said, gee, we never had to get a babysitter, you know, for Pat. We could just put that Victrola in there and he'd just wind it up and play it all day long. So when much later on in my life, something that came out of nowhere was a call to, to work with Frank Sinatra. And it was a very iffy situation. He was 78. It was obviously going to be the last record he was ever going to make. It involved technology. It involved a lot of complicated things and duets. But, you know, I, I, when I got the call to do that, it was like going back to, to, in my life to where I was four or five, six years old in the 40s. And I've been such a fan of all those albums that he'd made. And they made such a deep impression upon me in terms of my whole musical psyche that when you talk about an arrangement, uh, yeah, it's an arrangement, if you call it that. But, you know, you hear an arrangement for Sinatra of I've Got You Under My Skin, they start applauding before you even sing. So it's, it's a part of a whole other texture and picture to me than just writing an arrangement. And so I did the record, and we, it was touch and go. I mean, I, went, I, I saw him sing in three or four different venues. I went to Connecticut. I went to Vegas. Uh, we got, I don't know, Terry, what do we have, 40, 50 arrangements, something like that? And I looked them over, and I remember having all these arrangements but that Terry was like, had them all. And I'm looking at these arrangements, the real arrangements by Nelson Riddle and Billy May and Quincy Jones and Billy by all of them. And, um, and they're sitting on my desk. And I was just 
stunned at how important all of that was in my own musical psyche. And to actually look at those notes and look at and feel that was, was um, really, really emotional for me. And then I got around him and, you know, I think he kind of knew more than he said. He had total creative control. He could pull the plug on those duets albums anytime he wanted. And if he wasn't happy, you know, it was over. Even at 78, I mean, you know, hell, I'm 76, so. And you don't lose anything, I mean, you, you lose some agility and you got, you're obviously not young anymore, but you don't lose that, that time, you don't lose all of that. And when I saw him perform, even he put his, he didn't want to put his glasses on because he didn't, you know, he was vain. But he'd look at the teleprompter and he, you know, but that whole thing that he had never went away. And was the pitch a little funny? Yeah, okay. But there were so many other things going on there that he just went right to the heart of everything I loved about popular music. And so when I actually stood in front of the band, on the first date at Capitol, by the way, the date came about shakily because he was, the first, I rehearsed 30 to 35 arrangements. And he came in at Capitol A, where he made all those wonderful records. And the idea was we'd do all of his vocals first, and then I'd rearrange things, I'd patch things, I'd write new things, I'd just do whatever was necessary to make all these things into duets. And they were really hoping they'd get 12 to 15 tunes. And I had everybody rehearsed. It was ready to go. And he walked in, and he, he walked up to the podium the first night we were going to record. And he says, I got no read. I said, what? He says, I got no read. <coughs> oh, really? I said, OK. We got 65 people there sitting there waiting. And he says, I, I can't do it tonight. So he left. Then the next night, he comes in, or the two nights later, and, and we were sitting there. I had everybody rehearsed. He likes to record, he did, from 6 to 9. I had everybody there at 10 of 6, the whole orchestra sitting there. Two 48-track machines are rolling all the time. And he walks in, and he looks really good, you know? And Phil Ramone had had one of these booths built for him that was, <clears throat> I was told, was the booth was $50,000. And it was stuck in the middle of capital A, and there was a microphone, there was a couch, there was a couple of chairs, it was like a living room kind of vibe, you know? And I was standing there next to this booth and, and with Bill Miller, his longtime pianist, and Sinatra walks in the booth. He wasn't in there for five seconds. He just looked around and says, I'm not singing in there. I want to sing out in the room with the band. So there was no plan B. There, what if he didn't like the booth? There, there was nobody. Had, so now they're trying to get the booth out of the way, and they're trying to hang a mic. And the whole orchestra is sitting there, and, and Frank is sitting on a riser next to the Condi Condoli, I think it was right at the end of the trumpet section. 
And he's watching these kids trying to figure out where to hang a mic and everything. He's looking at it, and I'm thinking, this is about going to last another 30 seconds, I think. And sure enough, he just gets up and says, ah, I'm out of here. So his manager is chasing him down the hall. Oh, come back. Nah, the hell with this. So it was not an, a great start. And I think it was a couple of days later. I, oh, I remember I had a message on my uh, machine that said, be at Capitol at 3 o'clock tomorrow. Wasn't like, can you come? Are you busy? No, wasn't like that at all. So I went to Capitol. I had this big meeting. And they decided that they'd hang a mic and that he'd do, you know, pretty much like a concert. So that's the way they set it up. And I don't know, Al Schmidt found this microphone that had very little leakage, which was great, because if there were any leakage, nothing would work. Because all this stuff had to be done in post-production, we had to get singers and all that. So that night, he came in, and he was, I'll never forget it, it, it was about 10 of 6. And the whole orchestra sitting there, two 48-matrack machines are rolling. They came in about 10 minutes early, and he's looking through the lead sheets on his thing, you know, it's what he's going to sing. And it's totally quiet. Nobody's talking. The orchestra's not talking. Nobody in the booth is talking. And we're looking at the clock. And now it's 5 of 6, you know, 3 of 6, 2 of 6. And now it's 6 o'clock. And he says, what do you want me to sing? I said, um, geez, uh, I just lost, I, I didn't, what am I going to tell him what to sing? I, and Hank Catania, who's the co-producer, said, why don't you sing Come Fly With Me, Frank? And he said, shoot. So I went, one, two, you know. And he came roaring in, and I just, are you kidding me? This is not real. And for four nights, I think, or five, he sang, they were hoping to get 14 tunes. He sang 29 songs. And I was watching him like a hawk. And he'd know how he'd do, he'd see what the tune was. And he'd give me the tempo on his, by, by, by tapping on his thigh. And I'd look over, and he's going like this. He's not saying anything. And I'm looking, and I go, one, two, because that's where he wants it. Now, if I wasn't looking at him, I don't know what I know. But it was, it was, a, it was the, the two of us just locked in. And anyway, Capitol got two albums out of it after we did all the post-production, which was extensive. Uh, a lot of high-tech stuff with the duets and all. But, you know, we all knew it was his last record. He knew that. And I, I felt this enormous sense of responsibility. Like, I'm not going to be the one that messes this up. And then the albums came out. The first one came out, sold four million. The second one came out, sold another four million. Re rejuvenated his entire catalog. All of a sudden, his catalog started to help sell and all that stuff. He sent me a, the warmest and most affectionate note. I got a picture with him where he's actually in a good mood. And 
you know, it, was su it worked out to be such a, an important part of my musical life. And yeah, I wrote some arrangements, but it was so much more than that. And then after we finished it, and it was all, you know, it was successful, and he was happy about it. He was still alive. And I told Susan Reynolds, who was his publicist, I said, Susan, I'd like to do a tribute, a big band tribute to Sinatra. And she says, okay, I'll set up an, a, a meeting up at, at, at Capitol. Let's go up to Capitol. So we went to Capitol. We went up to the top floor. Uh, I'd never been to the top floor, but and I went into this really nice office, and I'm not quite sure who this guy was, but I mean, I, I think he was the president, I, I don't know. But at any rate, I do remember this meeting because he said, oh, he said, listen, I understand you've got an idea, I'd like to know what it is, and I said, yeah, I'd like to do a big man tribute to Frank Sinatra. And he says, what a wonderful idea. He said, um, what a great idea. I said, yeah, I'd use, like to use some soloists, you know, feature, because they're all tunes, and I don't want to just do big band licks. I want the tunes, the tunes are really important. And he says, yeah, absolutely. He said, this is such a wonderful idea. And I thought, wow, I've never had a meeting quite like this. But he said, and, and then he said, can you bring it in for 150000 And I said, yeah, absolutely. He says, great, what a terrific idea. He said, good luck, and he shaked my hand and everything, and that meeting lasted maybe 10 minutes. And I'm getting on the elevator, coming down from Capitol, I'm thinking, I never had a meeting like this in my life. And then it occurred to me what had happened, that Frank had made a call. That's what had happened. And so I did this album called Sinatra Land. And I got all some wonderful players to play solos, and there's all it's all solos on different solos on every cut. But the whole idea was to to try to do an homage, not just to him, but to the arrangers, the songwriters, the whole thing that he brought to American popular music. So the first thing you're going to hear is an arrangement I wrote of All or Nothing at All. <clears throat> and that was an interesting tune for many reasons because it was his first hit. And he had his first job with Harry James and, and then he went to Tommy Dorsey. So what I tried to do in this arrangement was capture that feeling of that period when he was just starting out. And there was a record I remembered called Marie. And it was a two-beat kind of arrangement. Was it Cy Oliver? I can't remember. But at any rate, it was a very famous trumpet solo in the middle of Marie, where it went from F to F. And I think it might have been Bunny Berrigan. I don't know. But I remembered that. And so I started the arrangement with that lick from Marie. And it, to me, it captured the feeling of that whole time but I harmonized it for four trumpets but it was that lick and it and and I had Warren Looning play the solo and um, I tried to get I tried to capture in the arrangement the whole spirit of that period for Frank and and then Harry James and Tommy Dorsey that was where 
very key people in his early career. So you know, I'll play the arrangement for you, but that's kind of the preamble. Due to copyright restrictions, we are unable to present this recording as part of our podcast. The song, All or Nothing at All, is on the album Sinatra Land, arranged by Patrick Williams for Capitol Records. It is available on iTunes and Amazon. The, this, this particular album, Sinatra Land, came out and uh, he was still alive. And uh, what was interesting, we recorded it at United Western. And um, at the end of each day, uh, this limo would arrive in, in the front of the studio and he wanted to hear what we'd done. And they took it out to Malibu so he could hear it. You know, he sent me the nicest note. Of course, it's framed. It was, but it was so sincere and just genuine. And I, I was so moved and touched that he would do that. I didn't ask him to do that. As a matter of fact, I didn't ask him to do anything. But the, the fact that he would actually take the time and do that and, and uh, was so interested and, you know, I felt that for just a brief moment, I was part of American popular music history. I really did. And uh, I never would have anticipated it. I had no idea it would ever happen. Um, but I had a little moment there, you know, where I was a member of a very exclusive club. And I loved every minute of it. Well, thank you all for coming. I hope you enjoyed it. And we see you next time. To find out more about the American Society of Music Arrangers and Composers, visit our website at asmac.org. That's A-S-M-A-C dot org. Thank you.